Welcome to the New Grace Sermon Podcast. Our church exists so people experience new life in Christ. We invite you to connect with us on social media at newgrace.cc on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about us or to support this ministry financially, visit us at newgrace.cc. Boy, what a morning. What a morning. If, if, your, body, if your body wasn't jolted by the time change, I'm sure the environment outside has been quite the hurdle this morning. But we went from having standing room only last week to availability with seating, which I'm sure some of you are glad because you're not sitting in your neighbor's lap today. But I'm going to tell you something. Whether we pack the house out or whether the rain and the weather and the time keeps half the people away, I know who is here this morning. And I know who's going to minister to us this morning. I believe that God's going to meet us right where we are and help us. And uh, boy, I'm telling you what, I've had, <clears throat> I've been battling, battling with uh, the crud all week and my sinuses and infection and uh, thankful for rest, thankful for all of you who were praying for me and uh, thankful for some good old medication. Rest, prayer, and medication. Beautiful combination. And, uh, boy, couldn't even, could barely talk a couple days ago. And just thankful that God gave me enough voice to get through today. Uh, real quickly, before we get into the word that I've got for you, uh, do mark your calendar for Easter Sunday morning, 9.30 and 11.30. We're going to have two worship gatherings. Uh, you know, last week I left thinking, boy, we might have to do two. I, I really want to ride the. I want to ride the momentum. I, I, there's nothing uh, wrong with you know having a packed house and people standing, and uh, people having to sit in the back and pull extra chairs out. Nothing wrong with that. Um, so listen, we're going to do two on Easter, and so I want to encourage you, all of my members and volunteers. You may want to consider coming to 9:30 uh, because 11:30 is probably going to be real packed. Usually, guests first-time guests will come to a later worship gathering. Uh, Of course, we give you the option so you can choose which one you come to. And for everyone who serves in NG Kids, you've got a wonderful opportunity on Easter Sunday because we're having two gatherings. You get to serve at one gathering with the kids, and you get to sit and hear the word and the message in the other gathering. So you get to serve one, sit one, sit one, serve one, whatever combination you get scheduled for. And uh, I am so thankful. We've got an amazing kids team, and I'm, I'm so excited about how God's going to build that in this season. Uh, we Listen, we just want to give honor where honor is due. Uh, we, can't, we can't have the Sunday mornings that we have without our team members that serve faithfully with pre-K and elementary. Thank you so much for making what happens here possible. And for being selfless, because when you have one gathering, you're back there ministering during the entirety of the service. And we, we're so appreciative. And I, I want you to know as your pastor... I appreciate your service, and I appreciate you pouring in. Uh, listen, if you have your Bible, I, I, <clears throat> I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I had, um, I've had a change of heart concerning what I was going to preach. <clears throat> and me and God, have, I, listen now, me and God, I'm not really okay with this. Me and God have been wrestling with this. And um, I'm like, Lord, I don't know that I want to preach that. I don't really know who's going to benefit from it. Um, I, but I feel like it's a word you've pressed on my heart and I feel like it's something that we're, we're supposed to declare this morning and uh, I want you and just Joe y'all just stay with me back there try to follow my lead uh, Hank pull up 2 Corinthians 13 on your phone and I want everybody else to go to John 13 And Joe, we're going to go, John 13, we're going to go 1 through 4, 10 through 11, and 21 to 27. Let's just take our time and read through the scripture this morning. If you are a parent with sticker number 50, you are being summoned to NG Kids. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Hank, you got it pulled up on your phone, your app right there. 
Come over here and read it for us. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. I want you all to listen. Hank's going to read this verse. Let's read. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves how that Christ Jesus is in you, except you be reprobates. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. One more time. Read it, read it real slow. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Take a good look at yourself. And here's the, here's the phrase attached to it when he says, examine yourself. Whether, the way we would say this in our modern day English wording, examine yourself whether or not you are in the faith. What is in the faith? In the faith is a phrase used to talk about those believing in Christ, in salvation, who are saved, who are forgiven, going to heaven. They are what you and I would classify as disciples or Christians. He says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are one of those people. So what litmus test, what kind of proving are, is supposed to happen inside of us? Now, this was, this was written in the second letter of Corinthians. So the first letter, he's already slapped everybody on the hand. You'd think he would have said this in the first letter, but he doesn't. He says it in the second letter. So he's, 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 already, uh, he's already hit things about behavior. He's already hit things about uh, immorality. He's already hit things about worship and order of worship and spiritual gifts. And here we are on the backside of the second letter that he's wrote to the Corinthian believers. And Paul takes time near the very end of the letter to say, make sure you check yourself. Check yourself right here, right here. Make sure you're in the faith. Make sure that you're actually what you say you are. Here we go. Make sure you actually have what you think you have. That, that's what he's saying. Now, I, I'm about to go into something that uh, this is not popular preaching. And this is definitely not the way you build a crowd. What I'm going to what I'm gonna preach on and what I'm going to talk about uh, me and God were typing it up at the cabin just a while ago before we came down here. So I need, I need, I need y'all, everybody need to notify your face that you're in church and we're hearing the word preach and, and act like you're glad to be here. Look like you're glad to be here. I just want you to know I love you. I, I love, I love you. I love you so, I love you so much that I'm willing to tell the truth no matter how it makes you feel. Now, if you want to bre if you want if you want to whip cream and whip cream and chocolate pudding sermon come next Sunday. That's going to really help you. That's going to encourage you. But but today I want to look at John thirteen. JJ, just stay with me. I do got a title, and when we get there, I'll I'll, I'll turn you loose. John thirteen and verse number one. Now before the feast of the Passover. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So right here, we're going into what we call the Last Supper. John 13, all the way to John 18, is the last few hours of Jesus' life. We're getting in the home stretch, and a lot of times you don't realize that. You think when you get to John 18 and Jesus gets betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, oh, that's the end. We're, when you get to the story of Lazarus in John 11, you're, you're a week in before his trial, crucifixion, and murder. So John 13, here we are. We're, we're, we're in that supposed possibly an upper room where they're having the Passover feast, and he's having that last supper with them. Y'all know that silly picture? that you see hanging on the wall. You got that long table and Jesus is on this side and all the disciples are sitting on one side of the table. Real silly looking picture. Like, like Jesus said, hey, y'all get on this side of the table. We're going to take a picture right here, right? That's not, that's not even the kind of table they were sitting at. They were actually all in a reclined position at a triclinium table. And the Bible says that we're at the very end. Jesus knows he's about to depart unto the Father because look at this, verse 2, and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Now, this is something that had already happened. At some point in the past, recently, Satan has put the thought inside of Judas, you need to betray him. He's probably not really the Messiah. He's probably not really the Christ. And let's be honest, everything he keeps talking about his kingdom doesn't look anything like the earthly kingdom that a Messiah should be setting up. He's probably not your guy. If you remember right, John the Baptist, his cousin who baptized him, even himself questioned, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? You ever had times where you, you just, you doubted God sometimes? If we're real honest, I think some of us could say certain situations cause us to look to heaven and go, really? Really? Are you who you say you are? Man, I'm so glad there is a true north magnet in me that always brings my compass back to what is true and what is right because there are some times in my life, let me go off script for a second, considering we don't have a script. There have been times in my life like John the Baptist where if I find myself in a prison of a situation, I find myself being faced with doubt and confusion because I think if God is good and God is gracious, how in the world could I end up in circumstances like this? If God is really who God says he is, why would God let things happen to me like this? Aren't I one of the chosen? Aren't I one of the elect? Aren't I one of the faithful? How in the world could my life get in a position like this? I am so thankful that situations do not have the power to dictate who I am in Jesus because there will be times when opposition and opposite somebody better help me preach this opposition and obstacles will take you by force and if you're not careful you'll let a situation tell you who you are instead of where you are i can be somewhere that i don't want to be but still know who i am in jesus but, but judas see G, judas didn't have that true north magnet in his spirit that john the baptist had and Satan capitalized on that. And he put, he put doubt and he put deceit in Judas's heart. Watch, watch this now. Y'all might wish I had a whole lot of notes before this is over with. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from suffer, supper and laid aside his garments. And look at this, took a towel and girded himself. Now we know what happens next. He washes the disciples' feet. All 12 of them washes their feet. And the Bible says in verse number 10, we're going to go 10 and 11, and then we're going to go to 21 to 27, Joe. 10, Jesus saith to him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. There's some, there's some symbolic power in what Jesus is saying. He's not just talking about physical washing. He's talking about the washing of the heart, the soul, the spirit, the cleansing inwardly of a person. And he says, ye are clean, but not all. Now he just got done washing the feet. And you know how the, the disciples, they never could, they never could de decipher that cryptic language in which Jesus talked. He just got done washing their feet. He goes, now y'all are clean, but not all. And they're probably like, wait, who'd he skip? Whose feet did he not touch? They never could figure this kind of stuff out. And notice what he says. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Verse 21. I can't believe I'm about to preach this. <laughs> When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. I get cracked up at verse 22. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Like the gospel accounts give you this picture where when Jesus says that, they're all like, Oh, shoot, snap. Who's he, ta who's he talking about? Is it, is it me? Is it, in fact, one account says they actually go to asking him, is, is it me? Is it me? Am I the one, am I the one that's going to turn from you? Am I the one? Let me say something. Let me say something. When you're so concerned 
you're going to mess it up. When you're so concerned you're going to walk away, you're probably the one that's going to stay pretty close. It's like, it's like that whole thing. Somebody gets up and preaches on Judgment Day real hot and heavy or preaches on hell, and, and you're like, I, am I saved? I mean, I, I, I love Jesus, and I've given my life to him. Am, am I okay? The one that's usually asking, am I okay? That's probably a good indication that you want to be okay, which means you probably have a heart for God. It's those ones who are asleep religiously who God slaps upside the head and it's an obvious oh my God he was talking to me the whole time that's me look at this look at this right here disciples looked on one another doubting of whom he spake verse 23 now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. See, John's so modest. John's the writer of the gospel, and John never names himself. So instead, in his modesty and humility, he says, the one that Jesus loved. He doesn't want to put his own name, yet he says, the one whom Jesus loved. You know them guys were looking at that letter going, come on, John, seriously. Like, he didn't love us. But John, John was very affectionate. And John, being one of the younger disciples, probably had a role model mentorship with Christ in that he was probably more relationally closer. John's gospel out of the four gospels is the most personal of all the gospels. And John was always that one you find leaning closer. That's why, that's why when the disciples wanted to find something out, they would ask John. You know how that is? You don't, you don't want to go ask the person. But you'll ask the person that's close to him, hey, man, I need, you to, I need you to find something out for me. That's what they did with John. Hey, find this out for us. And so the Bible says that Jesus was, or John was leaning on Jesus' bosom. And the Bible says in verse 24, Simon Peter therefore beckoned unto him that he should ask who it should be of him of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop. Now, a sop was him taking that bread that they had just ate and dunking it in that juice. You know, arguably you could say gravy, but I, that, that would, I, I think context-wise, Jewish culture-wise, I doubt he was dipping in it in white sawmill gravy from grandma's house, you know. He dips it in the juice, and he says, when I've dipped it, I'll give it to him. That's, that's how you'll know. And it says, when he had dipped the sop, now, to my knowledge, John's the only one that's receiving this information. And remember, John's like reclining, and he's leaning on Jesus' bosom, and Jesus says, it's the one I'm going to give this to. And nothing says that John stands up from the table and goes, hey, I know who it is. It's like John, John knows how to keep a secret. And Jesus entrusted him with a secret. And he says, he dipped the sop, and he gave it to Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 27. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. There's only two times in your Bible you're ever going to see the person of Satan himself dwelling in a human being. Okay, let's get this straight. Satan is a created being. He's a very powerful created being, but he's a, he's a created being, and he does not have the same power as God. He doesn't have, have the same attributes as God, right? God is omniscient, which means God knows everything. God's omnipotent. God's all-powerful. And God is also omnipresent, meaning God can be everywhere at once. Satan is a created being, and as an angel... He has limitations on his divine capabilities. Satan can only be in one place at one time. Here's a thought. Satan cannot be in North Korea right now and here right now. Now, I believe as an angel, he could probably move at the speed of light. So he could probably be in North Korea over there hanging out in that dictator's office. And then he could be in Baldwin a second later if he wanted to. But the point is, Satan can only be in one place at one time. Here's a thought. A lot of times, we credit our tribulation, our trials, and our trouble to Satan himself. My question is this. If Satan can only be in one place at one time, who are you among all the Christians in the world that you're such a threat to what he does that he would take time out of his busy schedule to pay you a personal visit. Chances are you ain't ever had a run-in one time with the devil himself. The only thing you've ever had to mess with are his cohorts and his co-workers, but you ain't ever had a run-in with Satan. 
There's only two people in the Bible that have a physical run-in personally with Satan. Judas and later the Antichrist. One has happened, one is yet to happen. So Judas was such a big deal, check this out, that darkness, Satan, entered into him. And when he entered into him, Jesus looked at him, and I don't think that when Jesus, Jesus said this, I don't think he was talking to Judas. I think he looked right beyond, the eye, right beyond the eyeballs of Judas Iscariot, and I think he looked Satan in the eye and said, whatever you're going to do, go ahead and do it quickly. Go ahead, because this is your hour in the power of darkness. And you think that you're going to finish me by crucifying me. You think that you're going to bury me and stop the plan of God. You think if you can kill the Messiah, that you will put an end to what I came to do. If you only knew what the plan of God was, you wouldn't drive nails in my hands. You wouldn't put a crown on my head. You wouldn't pierce my side, and you wouldn't put me in a tomb. Because in three days and three nights, I'm going to rise from the grave. I'm going to walk out victorious because I am the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. I'll go down as a lamb, but after three days and three nights, I am getting up, and I'm going to Come on now. The Bible says that Judas was nothing but a puppet in Satan's hand. Watch this. Watch this. He entered into him and Jesus said, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. I want to preach on this thought. Would the real Judas please stand up? Would the real Judas please stand up? Thank you, JJ. Now, let me tell you something. When people start talking about Judas Iscariot and preachers start preaching on Judas Iscariot, everybody in the room is thinking, yeah, that's right. Tell them, Pastor D. Everybody in the room is like, that's right. Tell them. Tell, tell, tell my Judas. Tell my Judas who they are. Tell my Judas what's up. L let, me, let me say something to you real quickly by way of introduction. When we're talking about Judas Iscariot, we're not talking about someone who betrays you. Because this ain't about you. <laughs> this is about Jesus. So the betrayal wasn't somebody that betrayed you. This is about somebody who betrays Jesus. See, right now I've made the playing field real level because everybody in the mind, when I said, with the real Judas, please stand up, you're like, tell me who they are. Tell me who they are. No. The reality is that it might be you. You might be the Judas that Jesus is talking to today. See, it's funny, there's a study that somebody did based on leadership qualities and characteristics of the 12 disciples. You've got one who was a hated tax collector, right? Matthew was not very popular with people. So Matthew's not exactly somebody you would pick to be on your all-star team because nobody liked him. You can pick somebody who's good with numbers and somebody who's really organized and got administrative genius, but if they don't have the ability to influence people to follow them, they probably need to be behind the scenes crunching numbers with a calculator. Now, there's also people like Simon Peter, hot-tempered, pop-off at the mouth, didn't know how to keep his mouth shut. He'd get in the presence of God. He'd be the first one to speak out of turn. Like, it'd be a good testimony service, and the glory of God was moving, and the Holy Spirit was speaking, and everybody needed to be listening, but Simon Peter's walking up asking for a microphone because he got something to say. A Simon Peter. Fishing business. Probably struggled had to partner up with people outside of his family just to make ends meet and make things happen. So he probably wasn't the best steward and he probably wasn't the best leader. You start going through all the crunching and the characteristics of these guys on paper. Listen to this. This study said on paper, the most qualified of the 12 disciples would have been Judas Iscariot. To man's standards, to our quality of what you and I would consider a viable asset to your team, you and I, we would look at Judas Iscariot's resume and we'd pick him first. Judas picked as one of the 12 disciples. 
on the latter end of Jesus' recruitment. And the Bible teaches and tells us like all the other 11, Judas spent three years at least with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now, I want you to get that in perspective. That means every time Jesus fed the 5,000, that was, that was men. That was including the women and the children. So you're talking 12 to 15,000 people on the hillside. And when Jesus broke the bread and he blessed it and he handed it to the disciples, he didn't just give it to Peter. He didn't just give it to Bartholomew. He didn't just give it to Nathaniel. He didn't just give it to John and James. He also put it in Judas's hands. So Judas was standing there, saw Jesus take the five loaves and two fishes, break it, and instantly there was Publix white bread in his hands. Just like boom, bam, and he's got two. Every time he just multiplied it, multiplied Judas saw that with his own eyes. Judas took it to people and fed them. And then Judas watched those same people go down to meet Jesus, and Jesus lay his hands on them, and the leprosy would go away. He touched their eyes, and they would be able to see. He would touch their ears, and they'd be able to hear. He watched dead people get up. He watched broken people restored, and he watched them walk. Judas was in the boat every time that the disciples were in a storm. And Jesus walked on top of the water and spoke to the wind and rebuked the waves, and all was calm and still. Judas was there when Simon Peter, too, like Jesus, stepped out and walked on the water and began to sing when he took his eyes off Jesus and Jesus picked him up and pulled him up out of the water and stepped back in the boat and immediately were on land. Like Judas saw all that. Judas was one of those disciples that Jesus said, all right, I'm sending you into these villages to preach and teach about the kingdom of God, and I'm giving you power. All power is given unto me, and I'm giving you this power to tread over serpents and scorpions, which is an analogical representation of demonic power. He said, I'm giving you this ability to go in here and confront the works of darkness and confront demons. Check this out. The very devil that would later dwell inside the body and the spirit of Judas, at one time he began to confront the those demons in the power of God's commission. Holy moly. He was in all the prayer gatherings and all the worship services. He's never missed a Bible study. In fact, he was appointed as the trustee. And the Bible says that he kept the money bag and he carried it around. Not just a trustee, but he was a treasurer. Like he was the guy that signed the checks. He was the guy that pulled up online banking on his phone. Like, he kind of he had a job, right? Makes sense now, doesn't it? Most qualified guy, give him the books. Let him be the accountant. Let him figure this out. Let him be over this. And all of this stuff comes to a culmination in John chapter 13 at the very end of Jesus' ministry, right before the end of his earthly life. They're all sitting at the table, all 12 of them, including Judas Iscariot. He's heard everything the other disciples have heard. He has seen everything they've seen. He has had as much exposure to what they've had as anyone else. And here he sits at the table and he's already made his mind up about Jesus. Judas Iscariot was so close to Jesus that he was out of all the multitudes of thousands of people, he was one of the 12 that got to sit with everybody else. He was so close to Jesus that when Jesus was washing feet, he washed Judas' feet. What a moment. Jesus has taken on the form of a servant and with the basin in the water he is washing the feet feet that will walk out and betray him to the priest and the scribes and the soldiers he is washing the feet that are going to leave him looking in I wonder what was going on in Judas's mind as Jesus bent down and was doing that washed him fed him. When Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body, Judas ate that bread. When he passed the cup and he said, this is my blood which will be shed for you, Judas drank that wine. He was at the table being washed tasting the things of Jesus. But I want you to see something. At some point in this relationship and at some point in his experience, he closed his heart to Jesus and he left it open for a devil. Your, your heart, your heart functions like a door. 
And what you need to understand is, while you're on this planet and you're living this life, there are two entities that want to get in. You, you do realize, you do realize that from the beginning of creation, we've always been under the influence of demonic power. Like the very, our, our greatest grandparents, Adam and Eve, in the garden were under the direct influence of a satanic entity. The serpent came and he began to contradict and oppose the word of God. He lured and tempted Eve. And then he, who was deceived, he then got Adam to disobey and take the fruit with the woman and plunge themselves into a world of sin and carnality, separated from God, and death would be their punishment. Satan's been working on humanity for thousands of years. I'm going to say something. Just like he had Adam and Eve's number, he's got yours. And he's watched your family tree. He knows how your grandparents were and your parents were. He understands the genetic code that has been imprinted in who you are. He understands you relationally. He understands you physically. He understands you mentally. He understands you chemically. And he understands you spiritually. So you better believe Satan has got you figured out. That is why there is such a call in the New Testament to figure out your enemy. People are dropping like flies and soldiers are being slain left and right on the battlefield because nobody knows what they're fighting against. The devil has done such a good job of making us think that our enemy is sitting in a chair next to us or living in a house with us or working in a cubicle across from us when the reality is the enemy is not something you can see with your eyes or touch with your hands or hear with your ears. The enemy that we wrestle against it is a power. It is a principality. It is a wicked spiritual worker and darkness and the bible teaches us that we have to decode these kind of things and understand what the real enemy is judas didn't see this judas was in every church service heard every bible study saw every miracle and here he sits at the table with jesus his feet washed his stomach full and he's already made his mind up and in making his mind up he opened a door to a devil that he could never close again. Did Judas go to heaven? Somebody may ask. Here's my thoughts. I don't know how Judas went to heaven if Judas was indwelt with a devilish spirit. Here's a thought. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? There is no doubt that a Christian can be demon-oppressed. There is no doubt in my mind that a Christian can be vexed by a devil. Vexed means uh, molested. It means, it means aggravated. It means attacked. It means there's an attachment. See, see, some of us right now, we contribute some of our greatest woes to our flesh because we don't want to give too much credit to the devil, but it is very important that you're able to discern the difference between what is darkness and what is just you being dumb. Because yes, your flesh is capable of anything, but the devil knows that, so what he'll do is he will capitalize on your weakness. He will magnify and multiply the power of temptation over your life. He will go so as far to set snares and traps ahead of you so that he can get you down in a place where you stay in bondage. My thoughts are, if you're addicted to something, you've got company. If you're compulsive and your flesh is obsessive over particular things and areas of temptation, in my thought, that is more than your flesh. That is a devil. You've got a demon attached to you. He may not be able to possess you. Why can't he possess you? Because as a believer, you're already possessed. Y'all ain't hearing me. You're already possessed. Oh, my God. Oh my. Somebody said, man, you look possessed while you're preaching. You better believe I'm possessed. You better believe because I got something from another world, from another dimension, from another galaxy living inside of me. The God of heaven and earth dwells inside of me. Ain't no room for a devil. Darkness and light cannot cohabit the same place at the same time. A truth and a lie can't live in the same place. Faith and fear can't occupy the same heart. Ain't no room for a devil in here. But buddy, there's all kind of room. All kind of room on this chrome dome for a devil to roost. I ain't, talk, I ain't talking about being demonically oppressed. 
I ain't talking about seeing shadow figures. That's real. That's real. Can't make it out. I ain't talking. I ain't talking. What's that, um, Jeff, what's that thing where, the, where they're sleeping and they wake up and you can't move? Sleep paralysis. We're so, we're so, we're so educated and intellectual. We've got our, our scientific definitions to explain away spiritual realities. Wake up, can't move, feel like you're suffocating, something's heavy on you. There's a darkness in the room. So isn't it amazing how, how, how demons will leverage your subconscious while you're asleep? You know when you're asleep, you're still alive, right? I know some of y'all are questionable, but, but when you're asleep, you're, you're actually still alive. And, and, and watch this, watch this. The only thing that turned off when you fell asleep was your body. That's why, that's why some of us will sleep and we will wake up more tired because our spirit has been at war all night long with darkness It was waiting on us to nod off. I'm not talking about oppression. I'm not talking about generational curses that devils are trying to pass on to me and my children. I'm talking about demonic possession. And moreover, not, not, not demonic, in this case, it was devil possession. We can, we can go to bat all day long on what demons are and aren't. I've stepped out on that limb a few times. I wish I would have just stayed off of it. But what we have in John 13 is Satan himself, the chief commander, stepping into Judas's life and dwelling in his body. And here's something interesting. I want to show you this right here. I, I, look, I'm just, I'm just spitting. I'm just spitting, throwing this at the wall. That's a left-handed throw. I'm throwing it at the wall, hoping it sticks. Your heart functions like a door. And there's always darkness and always light trying to get in. I wrote this down. Here's something that was, okay, here we go, here we go. Yeah, 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 here we go. We'll do it like this. How do I know if I'm the Judas? Or if we, if we want to get Pauline about it, how do we recognize when somebody else is a Judas? You shouldn't judge. You're taking it out of context. You're taking it out of context. Yes, we are to judge. The church should judge. The church should judge. You're going to judge what I'm wearing? You're nope, that's not what I'm talking about. You're going, to judge, you're going to judge my life? Nope, that's not what I'm talking about. The church, judges and, the church judges internally. The church doesn't judge without. I have no judgment on the world. God's going to judge the world. But the church does judge, does judge internally. If the church doesn't judge internally as far as helping correct, reprove, rebuke, speak truth in love, the church is going to be a circus act. There will never be any order, any order in the worship gatherings. There will never be any holiness in the leadership. There will be never any stability in the body. It'll be nothing but a flagrant foul of faith-filled people, just like Corinth. Paul, if Paul was preaching this, he'd say, all right, here's, how, here's some clues to help you find a Judas. He'd say this. He'd say, a Judas is somebody who will criticize genuine worship. You remember John 12 and uh, John 11, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, brought Lazarus back, and then Lazarus in John chapter 12 was sitting at the table, and, and Martha was fixing supper, and all the disciples were in the living room, and Mary is so called up with Jesus because her brother was dead, now he's alive, and she's sitting there looking at Jesus in the house, and she's overwhelmed with how amazing Jesus is. So she goes to her, goes to her bedroom and goes in the closet and gets out that, that year's worth, that salary year's worth of ointment. You thought that crap at Belk was expensive, but she saved up a year to buy this. Brings it out, 
comes into the living room, pulls out the bobby pins, lets her hair down, which was so opposite of Jewish culture. No woman like that should ever be in the presence of men, get down on the floor and let her hair down. But she was so mesmerized with the master that she didn't care about who was watching. She didn't care about who was taking notes. She didn't care about what anybody was going to say. And she let her hair down. She got down there starting at his feet, and she began to smother him with worship. She poured that ointment a year worth of wages on her Savior. She began to love on him, began to kiss him. The aroma filled the room. You know, most of the disciples are probably like, okay. They probably got under conviction because here they are, dignified men, and, and while she was doing that, Jesus was probably like looking at him like, it should be you. It should be you. But to whom much is forgiven, forgiven much, you'll love much. The one that's very acquainted with, with, with guilt is the one that's very acquainted with grace. And the one that's very acquainted with grace is the one that's going to be very acquainted with gratitude. I'm preaching better y'all leading on right now. You're sitting there wondering why she's acting like that, wondering why she's pouring herself out like that, wondering why she's willing to make a fool like that. Don't care about what nobody in the room thinks. Don't worry about your opinion or your ideas or your critique. Let the haters hate. Let the naysayers talk. I am going to worship him. That's what I want. I want to pastor a church that ain't afraid to worship, that is not afraid to bless God because we know what died in our life and we know what God brought back and we've got reason to rejoice and pour out our... Somebody better help me. Come on, if you're grateful. Let's just take a praise break right now. If you're grateful, can you smother him? Can you pour it on him? Can you cover him? Can you show him? Can you tell him? Can you let him know that I love you, Lord? I love you, Lord. She let her hair down. She got to worshiping him. All the disciples were probably, watch this, under conviction. They'd learn how to do that later. Usually takes men longer. I don't know what it is. We're hard shells. Hard, well, we're hard, we're hard a lot of things. I can't say everything I want to say. We're hard. Sometimes it takes a little bit of suffering to break that shell, soften us up. Let me tell you something. When you start realizing how much God forgave, it won't be so hard for you to praise him openly. It won't be so hard. You won't care about what nobody thinks. You think I care? You think, you think I could preach like this, minister like this, if I was worried about what y'all thought about me? I ain't over there worshiping, thinking, who's watching me? Who's looking at me? What are they thinking right now? Are they judging the way I'm doing it? I don't care. I don't care. I got plenty of oil to pour all over him, plenty of spikener to put all over him. And I'm going to let it fill the house. And as it's filling the house, is this making sense? I got, I got no, no homiletics today, no alliteration, just. She, she's, she's worshiping him, and all the disciples are sitting there, and they're probably convicted. But here's what's funny. One of them was so convicted that he criticized it. Yeah, it was that joker holding the money bag. And he come up with some stupid reason why she shouldn't be doing that. He said, that was a year's worth of spikenard. That was some precious ointment. That could have been used for the poor. What is that? that could have been used for the poor, clutching the money bag. And John, under the, under, the, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 12, tells us right there, in chapter 12, the guy who made that comment, criticizing the worship, who didn't like the worship, who got uneasy with the worship, who got uneasy when the worship started happening. That was the guy holding the money bag. And John tells us in Divine Revelation, he tells us that Judas was a thief. The guy holding the money bag was actually a thief. So he really didn't care. Look, he really didn't care about that, 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 
Spikener being poured out. He didn't really care about the money that it could have been used for that. He was bothered by the worship. He didn't like the worship of Jesus. That, that's something that's interesting. I would be very scared if the worship of Jesus bothered me. Because when I got the heart of Jesus, I love worship. But when I had the heart of Judas, I would scowl. I'd mock. I'd laugh. You got to remember, I hadn't always been saved. You got saved when you were 18. You was young. Yeah, but I walked into a church like this when I was 16. So for two years, I sat there and I mocked and I ridiculed and I laughed. And I remember looking at people going, sit down. Shut up. Then women would be up there in the choir testifying. I just want to thank God. I'm like, oh, God, we've heard this before. But that was so easy for me to think like that because I didn't have what she had. I didn't know what she knew. That wasn't a part of my life, so it was easy for me on the outside looking in going, I don't see what the big deal is. Now I'm on the inside looking out going, I know what the big deal is. Here's what's interesting. He's holding the money bag, and the Bible tells us that he's a thief, which means he was actually stealing from the bag. Like Jesus didn't set up a 501c3 or a nonprofit organization. They didn't have a banking account. They didn't have a bank account. They didn't do online banking and all that stuff. No EFTs or ACHs. Like Judas kept the money. They needed something. Judas had to hand it out. They got money. Judas took it in. They wanted to take a tenth of what they had and give it to the poor. Judas did that. When they went in the temple and they had to put it in the treasury, Judas did all that. Judas managed the money. And the Bible tells us that Judas was skimming the top. He was a thief. Can I throw this out there? And this is where, this is where, um, this is where you might not come back. Are you ready? A Judas is so motivated by money that they will never get their heart right when it comes to biblical generosity and they will constantly rob God. That's rough, isn't it? Yeah, I'm talking about giving. That's scary. A, Ju a Judas doesn't care. A Judas doesn't get it. A, Ju a Judas doesn't want to. A Judas is like, no, this is what I'm motivated by. And, and Judas, you remember, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Hey, Judas, was it worth it? You wanted your money and not a Messiah, and you got it. That's a scary thought. I'm, 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 con I'm concerned for people who don't like worship, who, who don't understand generosity, and, and people who can blindly steal from God. You know, Malachi said like this in chapter 3 concerning tithes and offerings. He said, will a man rob God? Holy moly, what a thought. What would you do if I came up? To you, Adam, well, I ain't rob him. What am I talking about? <laughs> Come up to Cindy with a gun. It's God will kill me, but, but it's all right. I'm not really taking money. Don't worry about it. But I come up and I, I rob her. I take her purse at gunpoint. I take what is hers, and I keep it for myself, and I run off with it. That is the idea, the imagery. Would you stick up God, take what is his, and not give it. That is the imagery there. Would a man rob God? Let me, let me land this plane. Let me land this plane. Y'all are like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Listen to this. When you get to John 18, don't, don't turn there. It's not on the, don't worry about it. Put it on the screen. Here's what's interesting. When Jesus goes out and he leaves the Last Supper, he preaches a sermon to the disciples, gives them a teaching, and then he goes where? Where does he go after that? Right before he is betrayed and arrested, where does he go? The Garden of Gethsemane. At the base of the Mount of Olives, right outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a garden that is filled with olive trees. Jesus goes in there to pray. And he's praying with his disciples. Judas isn't in there. Where's Judas at? Judas has already went and got the temple priests and the temple guards telling them, hey, if you want to take him right now and you don't want to do it in the eye of the public, I know exactly where he is. Here's a thought. Just because he's a Judas 
doesn't mean he doesn't know where to find Jesus. Any Judas can tell you where to find Jesus. They can tell you where he is, and they can tell you where he's not. And he takes them to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's coming up to him, he tells the guards, he says, the one that I kiss, that's him. So he comes into the garden, Jesus already knowing that Satan has put it in his heart to betray him. Jesus calls him, Where'd you come, where are you coming from, friend? Calls him friend. Talk about a dagger in your heart. He's coming to betray this Messiah. This one he spent three years with, given his life to. And as he's coming up to him, Jesus calls him friend. It's interesting. Jesus never called the other disciples friend. In John 21, he called the disciples children. There is a difference in relationship if I call you friend versus children. I can call Brother Michael my friend because he is my friend. But I call Hannah and Mason my children because we share the same blood. Church is full of friends. Full of people who are friends. A lot of Judases. A lot of friends. Sit at the table. They got their feet washed. They've ate the bread. They drank the wine. They followed him around. But they've opened their heart to darkness and closed it to Jesus. Watch this. Watch this. He comes up. This has always just floored me. He comes to Jesus. And when he gets to him, he kisses him on the cheek, which is called a holy kiss. In the Jewish custom, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ would greet each other. They would greet each other with a holy kiss. Are you, are you getting nervous? <laughs> they would greet each other with a holy kiss. I ain't going to do it. But they, that's what they would do. I'll do it to Jeff Pierce. Y'all want to see me get punched? Watch this. You wouldn't punch me, would you? I'm your, I'm your boy. They would greet each other with a holy kiss. And so Judas comes to Jesus... And he kisses him on the cheek. And this has always just stabbed my heart thinking about people who get this close but never get in. Jesus called himself a lot of things in the Gospels. One of the things he called himself was the door. Here is a man who kissed the door of heaven and went to hell. You know, sometimes I struggle with context, like what did Jesus mean by this? But when you think about that statement that Jesus made where he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we called you Lord, like with our own mouth we called you Lord. We, we, we prophesied in your name, we did many wonderful works, we cast out devils, we did all these things. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I'm sure when he said that, Judas was standing on the sidelines not knowing that that verse was aimed at him. Could it be you're sitting in this room right now and you've been here week after week, maybe even month after month, and you're kissing the door of heaven and you're going to go to hell because you've got Judas religion and not a relationship with Jesus. The real telltale evidence of Judas was this. When it came down to pressure under persecution, he turned from Jesus. Come on, JJ, let's close this. When it came down to persecution, he turned from Jesus. I said this at 9.30 in our pre-service gathering. I'll say it again. I wonder what we would do here at New Grace if what's happening in, in North Canada started happening right here in the southeastern United States. And I know when you think, man, it's going to take a long time for what's happening in Canada to trickle down. Let me, let me say something real quick. It, it, let, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you saw our country completely ruled by an overreach we didn't see coming. 
Like, how much push and shove did it take to get us to do something that they were telling us to do? Like, what did it take for us to shut our doors? Better yet, here's another question. When we opened our doors, how long did it take for some of us to actually walk back in them? And you know what's crazy? Me and Ashley were talking about this because sometimes it's the most amusing thing that I get to laugh at is, is people. I remember somebody who, who, who ranted and raved about, you know, just flipped out about the whole COVID thing. It's not real. And, and then they got it and almost tied and they're like, it is real. Uh, and, and all this stuff and people are, you know, mask up, don't mask up. You should have kept your doors open. You should have shut your doors. Like you can't win. You, have you ever noticed that? You can't win. It's that you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Like it was, it was a mess either way. And so what, what we find out, what we find out is there were many people that were raising Cain about that whole thing, but the moment the doors open back up, you still can't find them. They still ain't nowhere around. Because what COVID did and what a, a, a lockdown did and a pandemic did, it gave them the perfect excuse they were looking for to go ride their religious roller coaster right away from Jesus. And what we see happened in our country is nothing but a preview of things to come. What are we going to do when what's happening in Canada comes down here? Like, what are we going to do when it's against the law to do this? What are we going to do when, when, when biblical Christianity is a hate crime? Where me preaching from that book, that book's been outlawed. You're arrested if you are found with it. You're arrested if you have it on your phone. They've done hacks, your phones, they've got, they've got stealth apps, they're figuring out what you've got on there. You walk around with the Bible, we, we designate a place as church, we have to have basement church, we have to have field church, we have to have mountain church, we have to have ditch church, we have to go hide to be the church somewhere. Yeah, what, what, here's my question to you. Would you be willing to go to jail with me for Jesus? Like they might want to just throw the key away if they have to lock me up over this Jesus stuff. Because I'll start a prison ministry. I've already preached in the jails once. Yeah, I've already preached in the jails once. So it ain't going to bother me a lick to preach. In fact, some of y'all probably be more at home there anyway. A box and three hots, that sounds like home to you, baby. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you something. What would it take? For you to give up Jesus. If you had to give up your comforts and you had to give up your lifestyle and you had to give up your job and you had to lose your reputation and you had to move out of the neighborhood you live in and you lost your rights over it, would you do that for Jesus? Because that's how it was with them. Judas wasn't willing to give up his earthly kingdom for the spiritual one. Like that's the way it's going. And I don't know which way you want to cut your eschatology in times revelation. I don't know if you think that we're going to leave before anything bad happens. Or if you think we're going to leave in the middle of something bad happening. Or if you think we're going to leave right before the Antichrist gets here. Or if we're going to leave after the Antichrist gets here. Here's what I know. It ain't going to get no better. In America. It ain't getting no better in Georgia. It's not getting any better around here. Because we are living in a society in a world that is infiltrated by evil on every hand. And it is banging down the door of your heart to get in. So here is my admonition to you. If you haven't yet opened your heart to Jesus, you better do so today because there is darkness wanting to get in and make itself at home. You know, you know the attitude you should have about Judas Iscariot? You know the real attitude we should have today? could have been me that could be me when I think about Judas Iscariot and I think about somebody that was that close yet that far away it causes me to examine myself and go I am so glad that I've got the real thing that I know who Jesus is that he knows who I am 
and I am going to continue to give the rest of my life to him in service and surrender because he is my king, he is my Messiah, he is my God, and he is worth serving. And I'm going to continue to let my heart be open to him, and I'm going to close it off to the devil's plan for my life. Come on, somebody. If you believe that this morning, I want you to help me give him some praise. Come on. Come on. Would the real Christian please stand up? Would the real believer please stand up? Would the blood-bought spirit sanctified heaven down with the hammer down? Would you give him praise with me right now? I want you, I, I just want everybody right now who wants to capitalize on grace and mercy and come down to the altar and say, you know what? That could have been me. And I'm glad it isn't. Come on. That could have been me. I could have, I could have been, I could have been in Judas' shoes. I, I, could, I could be nothing but a religious robot. I could be somebody who was close but far away. I could have been somebody who was almost but all the way not. I could have, it could have been me. I don't want to get prideful. I don't want to get arrogant. It could have been me. Because I know, I know what it's like to be judgmental of somebody's worship. I know what it's like to rob from God. I know what it's like to be somebody who is bombarded with myself and the pleasures of this life. So I am just thankful that Jesus cleaned up this Judas heart. Because when I examined myself, you said some things that caused me to take a look inside. You should never be saved so long or so far in your Christianity that you don't know how to look inside and evaluate what you are and who you are. A word like this ought to make you really look in. Am I real? Do I have the real deal? Do I know Jesus? Do I really know Jesus? Does Jesus really know me? Am I somebody that's just sitting at the table or I got clean feet? Clean feet means you're just clean on the outside. You're not clean on the inside. You've got a religious covering. But there's nothing clean about the inside of you. I'm not talking about clean feet. I'm talking about a clean heart. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcatcher. New episodes are posted on Tuesdays.